0: Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sable, Director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show Climate Change, Water, and Public Health, my guest is Thomas Leviste, public health expert and researcher, and the Dean of the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at Tulane University. Coming up, I talk with Thomas about the impact of water-related disasters and which communities will be more vulnerable to changes in climate. Thomas, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: Great. So let's start off general. So when you think about climate change and health, what, in your mind, are the biggest challenges? What are the climate drivers that are most pressing? What are the public health concerns that are most pressing?
1: Yeah, there's so many ways you can go with that question because it is such an issue. Well, you know, one thing that the thing that comes to mind first is that, you know, we have certain pathogens that really can't survive in certain climates, you know, so that's the, the field of tropical medicine, right? And so now some of those pathogens will now be able to survive as climate changes. It'll be less, will be less, it'll be less predictable, kind of what what will happen in what region so for example we recently had an outbreak of dengue fever in italy where that wasn't possible or likely previously so i think that's one of the concerns that i have there also be more weather related disasters and these disasters disproportionately impact people who have less means and less power And so, I think community resilience and response recovery from these disasters is going to be extremely expensive to the economy, and uh, the impact on people's lives and quality of life is going to be great.
0: That's a great overview that, sort of,
1: in my mind,
0: mirrors uh, the changes that we're seeing. I'm an ecologist by training, so thinking about how ecology is responding to climate change, there are those exact two bookends to think about. The first is just gradual shift in species distribution so like we're watching all the western forests burn down and I like to say to to people well we're going to have to choose the ones we want to save because otherwise they're all going to burn down and that range is just going to move north and then the disaster piece is is so important especially when we think about droughts and floods and the current drought that's happening in Mississippi is a good example.
1: In communities that are not, not necessarily well situated to respond so I'll give you a good, a good, good example of Hurricane Ida that, that hit Louisiana last year in 2021. I used to live in Baltimore in the Northeast. President of the university is President Fitz. He used to live in Philadelphia. We both still retain our homes in those cities. Well, Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans and then continued up the eastern seaboard through Philadelphia and Baltimore into New York and did more damage to our homes in Maryland and in Pennsylvania than they did to New Orleans. So which geographic areas will have to respond to this? These these disasters will be different than what we've become accustomed to. And they're gonna have to be prepared, better prepared to respond to these um, disasters. I mean, these are, this is, uh, I think it's gonna be, it's an existential threat to humanity. But in the meantime, You know, it's going to be an economic disaster that we're going to have to be able to uh, mitigate as well as recover from these disasters. And then, of course, the inequity issue, which I'm sure you're going to want to talk about in terms of who is impacted and how much. For sure. And let's let's dive into that. I
0: do want to come back to the the disaster idea in the context of should I stay or should I go? Retreat, unmanaged retreat, managed retreat, the hard questions that nobody wants to talk about. We'll come back to that at the end, okay? Oh, sure. Let's dive into the, the equity piece. So uh, World Health Organization says the following, there is ample evidence that social factors, including education, employment status, income level, gender and ethnicity have a market influence on how healthy a person is. In all countries, whether low, middle or high income, There are wide disparities in health status of different social groups. The lower an individual's socioeconomic Mm -hmm. position, the higher risk of poor health. Mm -hmm. Give me some examples of these in the context of climate.
1: Oh, so the one that comes to mind most readily is, so in New Orleans, where you and I both now live, we're a city where significant portions of the city are substantially below sea level, right? And we're surrounded by water. Right on all sides, we have a, a, a levee system that was very successful in managing Hurricane Ida, which was the largest storm to ever hit ever hit the city. But when you look at the terrain here in this in this city, when I moved here and was looking for a house, I got an altitude app for my phone, where I would check the altitude of the homes that I was visiting. There's a correlation. At least I didn't uh, I didn't do a study here, but I sort of found a anecdotally a correlation between altitude and affluence of the community. So the more, um, the more affluent the community, the higher the altitude, the poorer the community, the lower the altitude. And so these are the communities that are gonna be most severely impacted. And so the, the health implications of disasters are gonna have disproportionate impacts on those types of communities. So that's just one pathway where it occurs.
0: Just an anecdote, Ida was my first hurricane. Uh, I sheltered in place. I sheltered in place because I felt like it was so relevant to my job at Tulane to to see, not the storm, because I'm not a storm chaser, but rather see what unfolds afterwards.
1: Yeah.
0: As a naive Westerner, my first observation was that the storm doesn't matter. It's everything that happens in the few days to weeks after the storm passes. Exactly. That's exactly what. So tell me about, let's think about this globally, we're talking about New Orleans. Tell me about how this unravels like in global health, in the developing world, for example. What kinds of questions do we have there that are different in the United States?
1: See, again, I mean, I think it comes down to who has the power and the resources to mitigate. So you look at mudslides that we see happening and these disasters that are happening I recently Googled the word flooding, which may seem like a strange thing to Google, but when you're a public health person and you live in New Orleans, your flooding is sort of top of mind, more so than most of the places. And the number of articles published in just the last 60 days about you know, sort of water-related disasters around the world was stunning. And you look at the countries, you know, they, they vary quite a bit. Fairly affluent countries, Germany, for example, is one. But they tended to be the poorer countries, uh, countries that had fewer resources to, to mitigate. So, you know, if you if you're not able to do that and you, you have a, a city that's built on a hill um, where or a mountain is nearby, when you're gonna have these mudslides, they're gonna disproportionately happen in those types of communities where they haven't been able to, to um, allocate the resources to to prepare for those sorts of disasters. But then, as you pointed out earlier, after the disaster, how quickly can you recover is going to be an impact, is impacted by the economic uh, status of the community that you're talking about, the country that you're in, whether or not they'll have the resources to do what's necessary to get the power grid back online, to be able to bring clean water and safe drinking water to people and food. So it's again, when you have the power, when you have economic resources. You're able to, in a sense, purchase your way out of uh, out of uh, harm's way, and if you can't purchase your way out of harm's way, you can purchase your way, you know, into a quick recovery. And you know, countries that don't have those types of resources just don't have the ability to do that. Well, let's come back
0: to New Orleans and the United States. You and I have talked a lot about the pandemic in the context of of this topic, and one of the things that that I really was aware of sheltering in place is that we we were going through, um, I think either the Delta or the Omicron wave when Ida hit and that the interaction between that disaster and Ida was poignant. Like I could feel it right. Because people didn't know whether to do physical distancing because they had to flee together. Right. And be in places that were shelters, they weren't familiar with. Talk to me about about COVID, about what we've learned from it, and sort of the intersection with with climate as a disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. So COVID is another another case where geography mattered quite a lot, and you know this country is dramatically segregated by race and by economic status, and so the impact of that is that if you have a disease outbreak that's infectious and it occurs in a community, it's going to circulate in that community first, right? So when COVID uh, you know, hit New Orleans, you know, we were one of the early hotspots along with New York City. New York and New Orleans were the two early hotspots here in the United States. Those the cases were disproportionately in the segregated black communities, mostly in New Orleans East and Central City. And what was interesting, we early on uh, built a map after the data on on mortality came out, we built a map looking at the location of the people who died and plotted that against the location of the drive-through testing sites that had been established here in the city. And you could see there was a clear disconnect. The drive-through testing sites were not where the need was and the people that needed the testing were not able to get to the drive-through testing sites. Right, And so the geography of, of disease is such that disease that passes on the basis of, tra- of, um, of proximity, like an airborne disease like COVID, is going to circulate within a community. So it's more likely that the person that is infected, that is that you infect is going to be someone that is more like you or lives with you or lives in your community. And that's where you have these clusters of death and disease that occurred. You see the same pattern here with these disasters because, again, certain communities are at greater risk because there's less resources to mitigate and people who don't have the resources to drive out to their weekend home and ride out the storm there or uh, who can't afford to incur a $2,000 hotel bill to stay in a hotel somewhere for for a week and a half. You know, those are the people who, who disproportionately find themselves riding out the storm at home and taking on what can be a significant risk, especially if you are living in a community where mitigation is more difficult and you're at greater risk because of things like um, like a lower altitude. Or another issue is if you notice in some of some neighborhoods in this city. Uh, and this is not just New Orleans. I'm using New Orleans as an example, really, because we both live here now you noticed, uh how many streets are, are not tree-lined. You go into some of the communities, some of the Black communities, especially in the eastern part of the city, and you see houses, but there are no trees, which means that there's uh, you know, greater heat spots and heat-related, um, heat-related illness is going to be higher in those communities. Now, there are, there are clear solutions to those problems. For example, planting trees, right? but can a city afford to do that? Does the city have the resources? This is one of the poorest, second poorest state in the country, very poor city. And so you so these these sort of problems kind of compound, compound each other and they begin to, to create this kind of nexus of one problem impacting the other problem and the same people being affected by the various problems that are happening or various you know, health risks that are current. These are the challenges that we face and why climate change is such a complex problem that really requires a truly multidisciplinary approach uh, because it, it will impact and it is impacting every aspect of our lives. And certainly within health is impacting uh, every aspect of health, whether it's mental health, physical health, infectious disease, even access to health care is affected by it.
0: Coming up, I asked Thomas where more research is needed to help address the inequities in health that result from climate change and the challenges of inequity when it comes to clean water access. That's great. I think you touched on a couple of things there that I just want to highlight. For an audience that is mostly water wonks, but we're we're talking about public health here. So one of the things that my mind immediately drifted to when we were in the middle of Wave three or four COVID and Ida hit was people are going to be crowded together, sheltering in space, and it's going to exacerbate the COVID infection rate of the city. and And I don't know if the the data bore that out um, afterwards, but it certainly seems like at least a visual for listeners to think about in terms of the interactions between climate related disasters in this case, but it could be heat, like you said, and 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 another illness or disease. Let's turn to research for a little bit here. You and I both know this well. The NIH recently launched a, a program-wide initiative on climate change and health, and there's a piece of that, that a significant chunk of that that's equity-related. In my view, this is super groundbreaking because I think it's it signals that we're literally feeling climate change in our communities at the population level or in our households or personally. And what I've been characterizing this effort as is viewing climate change as a Novel comorbidity, um, one that's acting now, you touched on a couple of things. can you Can you kind of expand on this? Like what do you think what diseases that are traditionally studied by NIH need to be studied in the context of climate change, the ones that are most pressing?
1: I think you know there was a lot of debate, and I guess there still is some debate about whether uh, NIH should even establish a new institute to focus on this. You know, I'm frankly ambivalent about it. You know, I, I see pros and cons of that of that debate. And I think NIH is is currently organized around disease states, right? So Institute for Heart Disease, Cancer, diabetes, you know, kidney disease, that, that sort of thing. But that really is, I think, problematic. And what makes this such an important deviation from the way NIH normally functions is that they're focusing on a driver of disease rather than the disease itself. And this is where I think NIH needs to go. And I think this is a a perfect example. So I think climate change has the potential of impacting all sorts of diseases. So injuries and accidents, obviously we would expect that there's gonna be trauma that's gonna result from disasters. Heart disease, obviously, you know, sort of MIs that occur for people who are under stress and duress. The impacts of heat on the heart is also, you know, well documented. You know, infectious diseases. You know, we we were talking about COVID and physical proximity and how it's an impacting. So I, I think it's. I, I don't think it impacts a particular disease state. It impacts multiple disease states and multiple systems, which is why you need an initiative that isn't focused on just sort of climate change and heart disease or climate change and cancer or something like that. This is, I think, a way of turning the NIH organization on its head, and I think it's it's well overdue. So but we can do this in many other areas as well. For example, socioeconomic status impacts all of these conditions. And so the focus, instead of being on a disease, I think should be more focused on the drivers and so I I, I applaud and I support this new initiative, but I think they need to do even more and move even more in this
0: direction. That's super interesting and it totally makes sense. So let's pivot on this same topic to equity. What are, in your opinion, the the most important? Um, and we're talking about research here because we're in the NIH bin here. Yeah. What do you think the most important aspects of research or research questions are that that would lead us to to addressing some of the inequities that you've already laid out in health as they relate to climate change.
1: That's a really tough question. I think because there's so much we don't know, and there's so much to be done. I think there's just such a wide variety of topics that need to be addressed. I mean, we do need to understand the mental health implications here. I think that is going to that that has a lot to do with how we will be able to be resilient enough to respond to recover from disaster, for example. I mean, so I think mental health is important. Uh, substance use and abuse is, is critical because we know that's a way that many people will, will cope with the challenges. You know, we need to understand more about how, um, how chronic conditions will be impacted by changes in the climate. I don't think we know a lot about that. I mean, we can sort of predict that heart disease is gonna be a, a factor as we are impacted by weather there'll be more stress on the body and there will be stresses on the heart. So it's, that seems likely, but exactly how that happens, what are the mechanisms and what are the p- possible interventions there? You know, I, I don't think we we know m- enough about that just yet. Boy, I could just go on right now. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty much the, the whole waterfront of um, of what NIH covers is going to ne- need to take a close look at it. And, and you know, and there's always that thing that we never thought of, that unexpected, relationship and we just don't know what that'll be
0: well i think your example of dengue is is a perfect example right like that that's just oh the tropics are going to move north and we're going to have tropical disease oh yeah,
1: yeah we're going to we're going to have a case of chak we're going to have chakas in alaska one day you know, know maybe maybe neither you nor i'll be around long enough to actually see that happen but and when that starts to happen you know you'll have to kind of re-educate the uh, healthcare workforce, people who deal with those conditions. I see it, something, it's not necessarily climate change related, although it may be, but I I saw that in Trinidad. You know, I hadn't been in Trinidad in many years and visited, uh, came back and visited and noticed something that I didn't see before, which was obese people. They just didn't have, you know, there wasn't much obesity there in the past. See much more of it now. And I was at the the, um, major hospital there in Port of Spain. We were talking about, kind of what what's happening and with the trends and patterns that they're seeing. And they were talking about how they were all trained for infectious disease because that's what were the primary causes of death in the country. And that's now shifting. They're having much more you know problem, many more problems with chronic conditions they are not hadn't been well trained to deal with diabetes and these other conditions that are quite expensive and complicated and can be very complicated to, to manage. So I think this is what we're going to be facing as the healthcare infrastructure around the world is organized to address the local problems. But as those local problems begins to shift as the climate changes and we start to have different local problems, we're going to have to be nimble enough to adjust to these these changing dynamics. And you're going to have to have the resources to be able to afford to do that. So here is a yet again, we have an opportunity for income inequality to play a huge role in how communities are able to respond. Very good. I, I like that the Trinidad example is super interesting.
0: Let's pivot to a third topic um, and get kind of to the to the water part of the of this segment. This is a water podcast after all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so UN UN Secretary General says this in preparation for UN Water Day March 22nd. Today 40% of the world's people are affected by water scarcity. of wastewater is discharged untreated into the environment, and more than 90% of disasters are water related. We've talked about disasters a bit already in this in this segment. I want to go to that wastewater piece and to water access. And this is particularly relevant given the recent disaster in Jackson, Mississippi, right? Access to clean water and sanitation. Talk to me about about equity issues um, around sanitation. And clean water access, especially in the rural South, and how climate change may affect that?
1: I think, frankly, I think that the biggest effects here are economic and political, right? Right. It's, It's who has the resources to be able to allocate to addressing these water problems. But beyond that, who has the political will? And I think in Mississippi, my take on what happens, what's happening there, is that this is more a matter of political will. Uh, scarce resources, and those with political power deciding to allocate those resources in different ways, in ways that disadvantaged the city of uh, Jackson. And so there's, a, there's an important political dynamic here. You look at Flint, again.
0: I was going to say, not much different than Flint, right?
1: Similar type, similar situation. Who has the power to make a decision and who made a decision? And was that decision really made with the best interests of the people in that community? And you know, I think we can all agree that was not made in the best interest. And, you know, sort of the political determinants of health have always been there. And I, I think, again, it's, it's, with climate change, the decision not to seriously address climate change is a political decision. And so in many ways, the level of destruction that results from climate change and the impact that, that it will have on people's health will be in, in part a political factor.
0: Right. So a little bit of a follow-up on that. We we um, At Bywater, we just produced uh, an infographic on situations like Jackson. So we looked at cities across the the South and found uh, many examples of of cities that have both combined sewer and wastewater, like Jackson did, um, and are of similar size and are majority Black, that a Jackson could happen in. How do we prevent another Jackson from happening in these cities, given what you've said about political will and
1: things? Yeah, I don't know that we could. It comes down entirely to the political will to allocate the resources to, you know, upgrade those systems. And, you know, I just I just don't see that here. I I think that's where the problem rests. Um, you know, we we know we know these issues are, are here. One of the very early in my time here in New Orleans, I get a phone call from the mayor's office. The mayor wants to meet with me, and it had to do with problems that she was having with the water system here in New Orleans, and they needed someone to come in and do some testing and, and help advise them on how to respond to the fact that uh, when this, when the system was built here um, more than hundred years ago. That uh, they built hydraulics into the system because they got the bright idea that you know maybe they could use the water to generate some energy. You know, and that hundred plus year old system now was sort of uh, leaching uh, chemicals into the water, and it was going to cost upwards of thirty million dollars to, to correct this problem, and they needed someone to come in and do some testing and help them help advise them on what. Um, how urgent the problem was and and how they might move forward. So these systems are there. You have to have political leadership who care about addressing these issues. And then you have to have the resources. So in the case of this this mayor, we had a mayor that cared about the issue and sort of wanted to bring people in to help look at this and advise on what to do. But then it came down to, well, where is she going to find $30 million to fix this problem? So you're talking about the poorest region of the country which is also the region of the country where social and economic in, in, uh, inequalities and particularly inequality, inequality as it relates to race has been you know, a major problem. We've been sort of been the epicenter for that. And these systems are disproportionately threatening people of color uh, who are in many cases viewed as being less valuable. So I think the political will is the biggest problem here. Followed by the economics, the fact that you just don't have the resources to, to mitigate.
0: So that's an example, probably a rare one, of where leadership is willing to put the resources in the right place, but the resources aren't there. Right now, we're floating in money from infrastructure and and a number of infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill and and lots of other avenues for funding
1: to get to communities Um it's the communities that are best organized that are going to be able to get access to those to those infrastructure. And so, I'm really curious to see whether we deal with the broadband problem in the rural rural South from this um, this investment. My supposition is that we're not going to adequately address that problem because those regions just don't have the political clout to ensure that that their needs are at the forefront. I'm glad you
0: brought that up. I was just at a a meeting at the Aspen Institute on disasters, and we were talking about this exact thing, both the rural and the po- and the the poor urban context. So there's a power dynamic, obviously, that's related to equity, but there's also an organization element of it. And one of the things that that we discussed, and I, I'd love to hear your opinion about this, is is the need for not only there to be this sort of top-down flow of resources, but organization at the community level Mm -hmm. about what futures could look like. How much of that is is relevant to
1: the intersection
0: between public health and climate change?
1: It's critical. It's critical because the political will is only going to be influenced by, you know, people who are able to impact policymakers. And if communities aren't organized, It's going to be those who have resources, the people, you know, lobbyists and others who are able to get access to policymakers and ensure that their interests are at the forefront. It's going to be the poor communities, the communities that have less ability to, first of all, even identify what the issues are for their community and how to articulate them and then be able to get access to policymakers. Is going to be a difficult problem for those types of communities. And so, what could wind up happening is that with this investment coming from the federal government, we may wind up actually exacerbating the inequities because the better organized, better resourced communities are going to be able to get even better, improve their infrastructure even more. And the communities that are not able to gain access to those resources will not make any progress. And so, we'll have an even bigger gap between the haves and have nots.
0: So do you think that that scenario plays out even in greater New Orleans area, like between downtown and uptown and New Orleans East? Is it, is it at that micro scale or is it more a rural urban thing?
1: Well, the largest industry in New Orleans is tourism and mostly tourism from the French Quarter. And the French Quarter is literally the economic engine that drives the entire state. It is the state that taxes the French quarter, not the city of New Orleans. Those tax revenues go to the state of Louisiana, not to the city of New Orleans, which means that New Orleans, while it hosts this economic engine, this does not get necessarily get a proportionate benefit from it. And the rest of the state gets more of a benefit from it. So yeah. And, and if you're the city, right, and you going and you have resources to allocate. Where are you going to allocate those resources? Are you going to allocate them to the French Quarter and to the other tourist areas because that's the economic engine? Uh, Or are you going to allocate them into communities that are not generating revenue? It's partly an issue of will, political will. It's also an economic reality. And these are the challenges that we face.
0: It's so interesting and, and ironic, too, because the French Quarter is there because it's on the highest ground, right? Which... Which automatically sets up this this inequity that we've been discussing with respect to safe spaces for people in the face of climate-related disasters. Well, great. Well, I think that covers just about all I wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you want to you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Or
1: yeah, I think we're all trying to figure this out. I mean, figure. And when I say this, I mean those of us in higher education trying to figure out how do we how do we prepare the next generation of Um, the workforce should be able to respond to this. There's so much we don't know and so much we're just trying to figure out. You know, I I think that, you know, these types of conversations are really critical because we've got to figure out how climate change is going to roll out, how it's going to impact health and how we need to educate the, the, the next generation of public health workers and other health workers to be able to respond to it. So uh, thank you for this opportunity to have this conversation. I want us to continue to keep talking about this, for sure, uh, because we've got to figure this out. Because I think it's um, it's you know I don't think I'm well I, certainly with this audience I know uh, they'll 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 get it that this is literally an existential threat to humanity, and we're going to have to gear up and do our part. And you know there are certain segments of society that uh, sectors of the society that maybe aren't doing as much as we'd hope they would do but we have to do as much as we can where we are.
0: Thanks a lot, Thomas. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.